Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, the podcast from Jewish Quest. My name is Simon Eder, and each week we are joined by a distinguished guest to help explore that week's parasha with new insights and meaning as we journey through the Torah. And this week to explore Shalach with us, it is wonderful to welcome Rabbi Francis Nataf, who is Jerusalem-based, a thinker, writer, educator. He's the author of the Redeeming Relevance in the Torah series, truly wonderful series, and of also many articles on religious thought, biblical studies, and current events. He is associate editor of the Jewish Bible Quarterly. He's also known for his radical independent thought and creativity, that or, that puts him both at once to to the right and the left, as he says, of everybody that he knows. And we had a taste of that in London a few weeks ago in the latest of his series of in-depth conversations with Rabbi Chaim Wiener. Rabbi Nataf, a huge welcome to you today. Thank you. Wonderful to have you. And maybe launching straight in, I wonder really what is the difference between the report of the spies in Bamidbar and then in Devarim? Sure. Moshe is writing his own story, basically, in the next version, in the second version that we'll see in Parshat Devarim at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. And on one hand, he makes himself look better, but he also makes the Jewish people look better in terms of what happened originally. He also places the responsibility for what went wrong squarely on them and takes the scouts almost completely out of the picture. One of the most amazing, and and what word to use, just amazing points that Moshe puts into the story or changes the story is that the scouts said it's a great land in Sefer Devar, which is not at all what we read in, in Parsha Bar, And as maybe we'll get to explain more as our conversation progresses, he seems to be doing that on purpose to take that extra, sort of the extra people out of the picture. Also Kalev and Yeshua are missing from the story. So it ends up being a story with only three real players in Dvarim. It's about God, it's about the Jewish people, and to some extent, it's about Moshe as well. But the extra characters or the supporting cast is really taken out of the picture. So you don't have Kalev and Yeshua. And the scouts are given a very small role where they're actually encouraging the Jewish people to, in fact, go on and enter the land. Thank you for that opening. And I guess really the next question that kind of comes to mind is, why the skew that we see in Deuteronomy? What's at play? What's what's going on? Right, so there are basically three approaches in the classical commentators. One is a traditional harmonizing view. is simply to say that they're focusing on different parts of the story. 
But ultimately, it's all the same story and all it's all possible to harmonize and to say, for example, one of my favorite examples that Sora Moore, one of the classical commentators, less well known, is that when Moshe said, and he puts himself in the place of Yoshua and Kalev, when Yoshua and Kalev tried to stop the people from rebelling, he says, I tried to stop you. I tried to calm you down, which seems here, it seems like Moshe's taking the credit for himself away from his from his un- underlings. So what the Surah Moore says about that is that, in fact, a person can call his underlings, his messengers, by can identify them with himself. And in fact, we see that a lot of times in the Tanakh and the Bible, that angels, for example, speak on God's behalf. And they say, I, and they don't mean I, the angel, they mean I, God. So there is definitely parallels. My point in terms is just an example of this approach of harmonizing, which we see in many other places in the Bible. And again, we may want to speak about this more. The Book of Divine is different for many commentators, where they feel more free not to harmonize and to say that this is Moshe's book. And I speak a lot about that in my the last volume of my series on the Torah, that Sefer Dvarim is viewed as Moshe's book, the one God allows Moshe to speak on his own. Since we have a different speaker, it's no longer the narrator speaking, the narrator being God. So Moshe is going to naturally have a different perspective. So that, that basically is the second approach to say one is God's perspective, and the other being Sefer Bimidbar, this week's parsha. And the other is Moshe's human perspective. And God told Moshe, I want you to write your perspective. That's the second approach. The the last approach, which is the approach I favor, you can mix and match, but the third approach is what the Abarbanel takes and says that, in fact, you use the word skew. So that's what the Abarbanel says. The other two wouldn't have used that word. But the Abarbanel, who is a famous commentator, pretty well accepted across the board. So he says that we have a famous principle in the Talmud that a person is allowed to alter the truth for the sake of peace. Peace is just one example of a value that outweighs truth in given situation. And, and the Barbanel in, in Sefer Dvarim, in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, speaks out at length what Moshe was trying to do. He was trying to encourage the people and give them strength to enter the land. So he crafted his speech, he crafted the story. Don't forget, this is almost 40 years later, right? So it's not a a memory of yesterday for the Jewish people. A lot of the people have passed away since then, right? So it's not something that everybody can recognize. And even the ones that were around to see it, that might remember it, may not remember all the details. What Moshe is saying, according to this approach, is it's not about history. It's about motivation. And I'm going to craft the story around motivating you, the Jewish people, to go and do it right this time. There's too much at stake to worry about niceties like truth. That's the Barbanel's approach. And I, I think it's a courageous approach. It's certainly, as I titled a talk like similar to this, an essay, and a lecture, what, was Moshe a postmodernist? The Barbanel's approach is almost postmodern in saying that it's all about narratives. It's not, there's no real truth. Even God's truth 
if one wants to be really radical about it, is it ultimately a narrative so that one can create one's own narrative. So, so I don't think the Barbanel would buy into that, be that as it may. It certainly pushes us into areas where truth and, uh, I don't want to say untruth, but truth and narrative are become blurred, become blurred, and one isn't clear exactly what when does one have to tell the truth? When was does one not have to tell the truth? What are the other variables? How does that play in Jewish writings in general? How does it play into uh, the Bible and Chumash in particular? I was involved in a conversation about the Bible with a friend, a colleague. And we're speaking about the names. We just read Megillat Root. And the names of a lot of the players seem to be symbolic names and not actual names, like the sons of Elimelech, certainly. Sickness and destruction. So as, as Rabbi Shama in New York says, who would name their kids that? And there are other names like that in other places. Nachash, the kings, the foreign king is called Snake. So maybe, I don't know, people call their kids all sorts of things. And so I, I know gangs, it's nice if they, people want to have fierce names. But in any case, the, the point I wanted to raise with that is our discussion was, why is it that most Chazal, meaning the, the rabbis in the Talmud, especially in the Midrash, seem to be comfortable saying that many of these people, many of the biblical characters, have symbolic names. Their names weren't their given names, but rather the Tanakh. The writer, whoever it is, whichever prophet is writing individual books, is assigning a symbolic to a king or to a person that doesn't really have that name. And he's doing it for literary reasons. Uh, Chazal, the rabbis in the Midrash, were very comfortable with that idea. And the moderns also are comfortable with that idea. However, for a long time, period of Jewish history, through the, most of the classical commentaries, that what's called the Rishonim, the Ramban, Eben Ezra, Rashi, we see a lot less of that. There's a little discomfort. I think there, there's a more linear understanding of truth, which I don't, we, we want to say it's, it's influenced by the exile or by Greek thinking, whatever it is. This, I think that there are affinities between postmodernist thought and classical Jewish thought. And moving in that direction is not, I wouldn't say all the way in that direction, but somewhat in that direction, I think, brings us back home to things like this narrative that we're speaking about tonight, and that there are these two contradictory narratives. Again, it's not impossible to harmonize them, but one has to work overtime. And it didn't see the, the competing contradictory narratives that, on the other hand, while it bothers that middle group of people that I mentioned, the Ramban, the Ezra, and all these classical commentators, it didn't bother the rabbis of the Midrash. They're not asking, how could he say this when it said that? So it's very interesting that I think there's a meta issues that are brought up by these contradictory narratives is to what extent are we concerned about contradiction? To what extent is truth the supreme value that one can't change, that they're not alternative truths that might both be valid? And just picking that up, do you see the kind of meta-narrative really 
being about sacrificing truth for the sake of peace? Is that the kind of overarching construct that you're that you're putting? So I, I don't know if that narrative, it could be in this particular story. I think to speak about meta narratives, I would want to extend beyond this story. There, there are other stories that, and right after actually in Dvarim, right after Moshe spins the story of the scouts, he also spins, or actually before, I'm sorry, before he talks about the scouts, he speaks about the choosing of judges of when Yitro came to him and advised that he should have judges beneath him to take away from his burden. So he, he recounts that story, seemingly recounts the story and changes that as well. So I think that there is certainly the beginning of the first part of the book of Dvarim, there is a sense that truth is something that's malleable that one can play with. And as as I said before, I think peace is only one possible variable. In other words, here, the Barbanel says it's not really about peace. It's about encouraging people. And I I think that when the classical places where the halakha says you should lie is more similar to this than the case of peace, the the, the, common... The most classical example is is peace between a husband and wife, right? And the Torah says that even God changed what Sarah said. Sarah said that Avram was old, and God said she said she was old. So that why was that in order to not hurt his feelings? Because if she had said Sarah said that, then he hurt his feelings, he'd be upset, maybe. So that's the classical example. But the other example, which I, th- I find more powerful and more relevant to this situation, is the the person who's critically ill this actually is not uncommon in in accidents when a, you know two or three people are in a car accident and one is badly injured and the other one dies um, so the badly injured one uh, their health uh, before they stable out and the health is not stable you're not allowed to tell them that the person died the other person died the other passenger because that will possibly impact on their head. And, and I know a case of a person who almost died because they they told him the truth in such a situation. So I think that's what the Abarbanel compares this situation, that it's about getting the Jews to be bold and strong in a situation that required a lot of courage and that they'd failed at before. So that it's almost a question of life and death. It's not quite that, but it's Something very similar to that. So is there a meta-narrative about that here? I'm not sure that's the main point. It's interesting. Again, I think that what might be shocking and fascinating to us might have been taken for granted when it was given, such that I don't know that the Torah is necessarily emphasizing it or creating it. The Torah gets artful and uses emphasis when there's a point to be made. Here, it's there, but I don't think the Torah is necessarily making a point. Again, like I said, the rabbis took it for granted. Yeah, of course. First Moshe is going to change the narrative. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I think meta narrative, and it might be a bit too strong a term to use for what's going on here, but I think it's there. I think it's definitely there. 
I wonder if we might actually unpack a little bit more about what this says about the importance of truth. And maybe just to to incorporate a couple of instances, if I may. I was listening the other day actually to another podcast about the Northern Ireland peace process, about how it evolved. And this was actually with, with Tony Blair and some of the other key architects of the peace process coming up in, in 1997. And they were reflecting on the world today as we have it with social media. And actually what they were saying is that without the kind of openness that creates, actually the actually the situation in which parties didn't know as openly as maybe things as we have our constructs today, actually enabled trust to be built rather than this kind of radical openness and often a kind of destructiveness that that we see with 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 the world as we have it today and social media rampant and seemingly seemingly inverted commas like truth being being available to everyone at all times i wonder how we navigate that that kind of scenario and what maybe this episode has to teach us yeah, and I think it's a great question, and I think it's really timely in terms of the impact of social media and that information is so readily available. It's interesting, in spite of that, in the United States, you had a closed-door negotiations between the president and the Speaker of the House, who was a Republican, excuse me, the majority leader of the Senate, who was a Republican, and that was closed doors, so much so that no one knew till afterwards what the compromise was about. And it was very smart that was closed doors because there's no way that they could have come together if everybody would have picked at everything they said and everything that they were giving back and forth. On the one hand, there's, I think there's a problem of too much information, which is one thing, but I think there's also an important use of falsehood. I'm using extreme term, you know, falsehood. Diplomacy, my original career path was to be a diplomat. And I didn't go through lying 101, of course, but being diplomatic is knowing what to say, what not to say. And truth can be harmful. And that's clearly enshrined in Jewish law. And what's interesting is I'm a big truth fanatic. I get very upset when people are dishonest. Um, So I think there, I think truth is a central important value in Judaism and blatant lying for no purpose, which is not uncommon or simply to advance one's own personal interests is more than highly problems. It's a terrible thing. And it's good that society values honesty perhaps more than in the past and other cultures. So on the one hand, that's a good thing. On the other hand, it's like the Rambam says, it's really Aristotle, but Rambam borrows from Aristotle about the golden path, that you want to, with values, it's usually, you're usually speaking about a spectrum, and one wants to negotiate in the middle of that spectrum. So that with truth-telling, 
one can simp- one can definitely go to the extreme. And I think that's where society has gone, especially, as you said, with the availability of knowledge. As you also hinted to, it's not always true. But putting that aside, even if everybody were speaking the truth, that's not necessarily helpful. As you said, with negotiations, one of the things the Abraham Accords happened in, in our region. I know you're familiar with many of the countries in, in, in the Abraham Accords personally, but one of the things that made it work, according to to President Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who was really the one you know moving around. So he said the key was not to talk about the past. And on some level, how can you move forward without acknowledging the past? But sometimes not helpful. You have to, and I think that the bottom line of this is what the Abarbanel, I think, is driving at in these two stories is you have to be goal-driven. And you have to say, what do I want to accomplish? How important is what I have to accomplish? And what is still ethical to sacrifice to that goal? If it's not ethical, then you can't do it. There's certain things that are, for example, the the one thing that is non-negotiable in our tradition is human life. You can't kill another person unless we're talking about a punishment, but in terms of killing someone to accomplish something, Dostoevsky's crime and punishment, the question of can you kill someone who, on some level, it's utilitarianism gone haywire, right? My my life is more valuable. The protagonist is young. He can do more with the money that the old woman has, and therefore, it's legitimate to kill her. So we don't do that. It's clear that we don't do that. That's not a possibility. But one can make such a calculation when it comes to sacrificing the truth. And I think that's an important point, a point that shouldn't be taken for granted. Rabbi Nataf, thank you so much for exploring with us today and bringing all sorts that I didn't think we'd get to, but we truly encompassed it all. And the mess is, is, is running through my head. And I don't think we have yet ended a between the lines with MS. So about time that we did. So thank you for bringing that to us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do, of course, check out all of our exciting content we have for you at our mothership, jewishquest.org. And we do look forward to meeting again next week, where we shall be exploring Korach. Korach.